The hothouse world of the Paleocene Epoch only grew in temperature as it passed into the Eocene Epoch, 56 million to 33.9 million years ago. The boundary between the two epochs, only lasting around 200,000 years, is known by paleontologists as the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, because global temperatures soared to an average of 74 degrees Fahrenheit. This extreme jump in heat and humidity has been linked to a spike in methane emissions from the ocean floor, as frozen reservoirs of the gas are thawed due to rising ocean temperatures. As we've seen, the oceans had already been warming for some time, so this change in temperatures would have easily released all this methane, which, being a greenhouse gas, trapped in oncoming heat from the sun and warmed the planet. The evidence for this occurrence has been found in the way that certain forms of carbon were produced by fossil plankton from this time that match a sudden methane spike. The circulation of ocean currents brought warm water from the poles in contact with warmer water from the equator, meaning that the entire marine environment was kept consistently hot. Tropical forests did so remarkably well during the early Eocene that they stretched from pole to pole, quite literally. In rocks found as far north as Greenland, there were communities of palms, fruiting trees, and reptiles. The Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum affected a world that was still slowly changing into a recognizable form. Of importance to note for the early Eocene was one key difference in geology. In the Western Hemisphere, chunks of land that had begun rifting from the northwest tip of South America were slowly moving eastwards between that and North America since the late Cretaceous. Now, Around 55 to 40 million years ago, these small islands had been establishing themselves near their modern localities, forming the earliest recognizable stages of the Caribbean islands. Though, briefly, the islands of Hispaniola and Puerto Rico were to be found underneath Cuba. In the warming oceans, planktonic species bloomed and increased with diversity, with diatoms, dinoflagellates, and even coccolithophores expanding their ranges. Among these groups were the shelled foraminifera, who had already evolved over 540 million years ago. I bring them up now because we hold the Cenozoic species in very high regard. Forums are one of the plankton groups that turn into oil. The process for making oil is similar to that of coal, where the dead remains of the plankton are pressed deep into the earth and superheated till they develop into oil reserves. And just like the great trees of the Carboniferous rocks, all the carbon found in the Foraminiferan shells is still there. Of related interest are a subgroup of Foraminifera called Numulitids, who left their giant shells behind in limestone found in present-day Egypt. It was from these rocks that the Egyptians would use to build the Sphinx and the Great Pyramids. For the first time since the Cretaceous, reef-forming species returned in the form of the Scleractinian corals, who are now spreading all across the shallow surface waters of the Earth, particularly in the Pacific and Tethys Oceans and the Western Atlantic. Many of the species we know today, the brain corals, staghorn corals, and mushroom corals, were present in greater numbers than ever before. There was another new marine habitat that formed during the Eocene, the fields of seagrasses. Seagrass is not related to the grasses we know today, but instead they belong to the arum, water plantain, and pondweed group. These new and growing ecosystems supported a remarkable jump in the diversity of marine invertebrates, with mollusks, arthropods, and echinoderms in particular doing very well. Crabs and lobsters hunted among the reefs, while cowries, pen snails, and other gastropods inched along the seabed. Among the urchins emerged the very first sand dollars, who are flatter and have smaller spines than their ancestors. With the advent of the coral reefs emerged a new collection of ray-finned fishes, including all the popular and colorful lineages like the wrasses, puffers, surgeon fishes, angel fishes, and trigger fishes. The first hammerhead and thresher sharks patrolled the waters, 
using unique adaptations compared to their streamlined relatives. They were joined by many lineages of giant sharks, who were able to thrive in the warmer Eocene waters and go after larger bodied prey. There was one group of mammals who would quickly join their very distant relatives and grow into one of the most iconic and beloved of all marine species. Around 53 million years ago, two lineages of semi-aquatic mammals diverged from each other. One preferred to stay amphibious and develop large bodies for processing land plants, becoming the ancestors of hippos. The other gradually trekked deeper and deeper into rivers and lakes and relied more on fishes for sustenance. Among these was Pachycetus, looking like a cross between a wolf and a deer, with an elongated body, tiny hooves on its feet, and large jaws full of slicing teeth. What was really peculiar about this mammal was the way that its eyes were found high on their head, and how the bones in its ears were shaped for hearing underwater sounds. The later species completely abandoned the semi-aquatic lifestyle and devoted their entire lives to living in freshwater. One of these was Ambulocetus, who had webbed fingers and toes and a very streamlined body like an otter. Its vertebrae were very flexible, and the animal undulated as it swam after fish. Still later, the body lengthened and became much more streamlined as the animals began to rely more on their tails than their hind limbs for swimming. It wouldn't be long until the forelimbs developed into paddles, while the hind limbs became much reduced as the tail grew and supported paired fins at its base. The nostrils changed too, moving further and further up the snout till they lay at the center of the head, where the eyes had moved down to the sides of their skulls. Between all this anatomical change, these mammals moved from freshwater regions to the oceans. This culminated in the 66-foot Bacillosaurus, and it was when animals like these lived, 40 to 35 million years ago, that the oceans were home to the whales. That we understand how whales evolved from land mammals, and just who their closest relatives are, both today and in the fossil record, is a testament to the increasingly sophisticated techniques of paleontologists and other researchers in recent times. On land, the mammals had begun to take over the earth. In the early Eocene, the largest species had grown to the size of domestic cattle, but by the end of this epoch they had become as large as elephants. Because the earth's continents provide a unique perspective into the biogeography of their faunas, I will be examining mammalian evolution on a continent-by-continent -continent basis. Around 55 million years ago, the continents of Eurasia and North America were still connected together by land bridges. This allowed many of the newly evolving lineages to spread out to other lands and compete with their native species for the same resources. In North America, the first horses evolved. These were small animals, only around two feet in length, comparable to some dog breeds, that ran in the underbrush of the tropical forests. They had four toes on their forefeet and three toes on their hind feet, tipped with little hooves. These early horses were browsers who fed on the leaves of bushes with simple chewing teeth. Over the Eocene epoch, they grew in size and began to displace some of the older hoofed mammals that had dominated the Paleocene before them. Among carnivorous mammals, the creodonts were still doing well, and the early weasel-like carnivorans continued to chase after small prey. The extensive tropical forests had encouraged the spread of flying insects, and this allowed one group of Laurasiatherian mammals to go after them as a food source. Perhaps beginning as arboreal mammals, they developed a membranous skin along their bodies, supported by their arms and fingers, which elongated and formed a wing. These were the earliest bats, with fossils showing that they already had echolocating abilities 52 million years ago. In Eurasia, there were clear signs of changing faunas both in Europe and Eastern Asia. The squirrel-like early rodents that evolved in the Paleocene of Asia had by now spread into North America and Europe, and diverged into their key lineages, including the myomorphs, mice, rats, and kin, and the squirrel and dormouse group. 
Related to the rodents are the lagomorphs, or rabbit lineage, who evolved in Asia alongside them. The earliest members of this lineage were not hopping long-eared animals yet, but rather scampering marmot-like creatures. One lineage of Laurasiatheres are the Lipotyphlans, which is the group of mammals that includes the shrews, moles, and hedgehogs of today. Fossils indicate that this lineage evolved either in North America or Europe, with early shrews appearing in North America and early moles and hedgehogs appearing in Europe by the middle of the Eocene. One curious lineage, the Selenodons, appear to have already evolved and settled in the Caribbean, where they've remained ever since. In Africa, still an island continent, the Afrotheres were diverging into their present-day lineages. Of primary interest are two groups that began much like the ancestors of whales and hippos did, as similar animals in both shape and habitat. In this case, the Tethytheres were large, pot-bellied, pig-like animals, living a semi-aquatic lifestyle and eating a wide range of different plants. One lineage of these began to develop a short proboscis, or fleshy prehensile nose that aided them in gripping leaves and twigs. Their foreheads became raised, and they began to grow out their incisor teeth. This lineage became the proboscideans, the ancestors of the modern elephants. The other lineage remained semi-aquatic, but began to increasingly rely on aquatic resources as they thickened their bones to help them dive deeper and stay underwater for longer periods of time. Their snouts became downturned as their lips grew fleshy, a good adaptation if you want to feast on the groves of seagrasses that were now growing all about. Eventually, their nostrils moved to the tops of their snouts, and their hind limbs became diminished while their forelimbs flattened into a paddle dotted with nails. This lineage begat the first sea cows, and became the second group of marine mammals, after the whales. South America was another island continent, and it quickly grew to be the odd one out for placental mammal evolution. Several groups of Laurasiatheres, related to the odd-toed perissodactyls, became isolated on this great landmass. The only mammals there to greet them were the marsupials, who were mostly carnivores, and the xenarthrans, who had by now also produced the earliest armadillos. Thus, there were niches open for herbivorous animals, and they had begun to converge in body plan with their distant relatives in the northern hemisphere. In Sahul, the situation was a little different, with the marsupials now having the upper hand as the dominant group of mammals. Fossils indicate that marsupials arrived in Sahul from South America via Antarctica by 55 million years ago, and it was following that when some of them had begun to diversify into their modern lineages. They coexisted with a few placental groups, including bats, but these would remain minor elements of the Sahulan fauna. At the end of the early Eocene, the global climate finally began to cool. Over a period of 15 million years, surface temperatures gradually crept downward, with no indication that carbon dioxide levels were changing in any significant way. It is thus unclear as to what caused this change in climate, but its effects were certainly marked in the responses of plants and animals. For one, the one-world rainforest that dominated the early Eocene had begun to be replaced by subtropical and then deciduous temperate forests. Oaks, sycamores, pines, walnuts, and other species of gymnosperm and angiosperm trees were spreading around the planet, particularly in the great expanses of Eurasia and North America. On land, these forests supported larger and larger herbivores. In North America, horses had gotten larger and had lost one of the toes on their forefeet. Sharing that land were many new artiodactyl groups, including the first camels, that lacked humps and were tiny enough to sit on your lap. The largest land mammals in the world included the Dinoceratons, who ranged in Asia as well as North America. They reached lengths of 13 feet long, and were often characterized by their strange bony knobs that protruded from their skulls, the function of which seems tied to sexual selection.
They often sported elongated canine teeth, tusks really, from their upper jaws, and these too appear to have been used for combat between individuals. Larger still were the brontotheres, which were closely related to horses but grew as large as 16 feet. Like the dinoceratons, they also had unique headgear, this time a forked and flattened protuberance at the base of their snout. The structure of these ornaments has been suggested to be display structures that could also be swung at the sides of their rivals, rather than head-on. These giant herbivores would have not been severely affected by any would-be predators, including a newly evolved group called the Nimravids. These resembled cats, and even sported sabered teeth, but they were a case of convergent evolution that left no living descendants. They, along with the creodonts, were the main predatory mammals of the later Eocene. The Eocene was a very good time for bird evolution, too, and it marked the development of many charismatic lineages. One remarkable transformation occurred in the history of the Swifts, who evolved early in the epoch. Their ancestors were nocturnal, forest-dwelling birds, the same that gave rise to the whippoorwills and frogmouths. Over time, they shrank in size and reduced their hind legs as they became more reliant on an aerial existence, chasing after fast-flying insects. With a switch to diurnal, or day-living activity, the swifts had arrived. Early cuckoos, turricos, mouse birds, hawks, parrots, and perching birds inhabited the trees, while early rails, cranes, loons, and herons patrolled river and lake environments, feasting on the abundance of newly evolving freshwater fishes like carp and minnows. Some species had joined the penguins near the coasts, including the first petrels, frigate birds, and a group of now-extinct species called the pelagornithids. These were the false-toothed birds, meaning that their beaks were lined with serrated edges that functioned like teeth, which could stab fish they caught. Pelagornithids have been suggested to belong to the lineage that includes ducks, pheasants, and their relatives, but the largest sported wingspans of 20 feet. The gradual cooling that marked the middle and late Eocene epoch erupted into full swing around 36 million years ago, when a sudden drop in global temperatures ended the life histories of many animal and plant lineages in the oceans and on land. While the previous bout of cooling lacked any good explanation, we at least recognize that this extremely short event was the result of the final severing of Sahul in South America from Antarctica. The three continents had been separating for some time now, but there was now such significant ocean between them that a new current formed that circled the entirety of Antarctica. This change in ocean circulation meant that the cycle of continuously warm water was interrupted, and the deep ocean waters off the coast of Antarctica grew very cold as a result. During the long drop in temperatures at the tail end of the epoch, there was just enough cool for small glaciers to form in Antarctica, but now with this change they grew greatly in size and width. All of that polar ice further cooled the climate, and the Eocene epoch ended with a small extinction event where many of the species that had already been adapted to the cooling world couldn't react in time to the rapid shift. Incidentally, none of this global climate change was in any way affected by the massive bolide impact that struck the Chesapeake Bay around 35.5 million years ago. Nothing too major. To continue this episode, please go to part 3.